Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, November 21st. On today's show, as promised, we're offering our extensive recap of the 2023 ATP Tour Finals. Now, if you are looking for a Djokovic-centric podcast, which I know some of you tennis fans do indeed enjoy, check out yesterday's episode of the Mini Break Podcast. I offered my thoughts on Djokovic's 2023, where this past season ranks in the many accolades, many fantastic seasons he has compiled throughout the course of his career. That said, on today's show, we want to back up. We want to take a 10,000-foot view of this ATP Tour Finals, much like we did for the WTA Finals as well. We want to offer grades for all of our participants at this year's events. We want to address the other storylines that emerged from the tournament as well, those two being, of course, the tanking discourse surrounding Yannick Sinner's decision of his final round Robin play match. Also, discuss this era, because with 36-year-old Novak Djokovic completing a 55-6 and season, it's worth asking, is Novak that good right now, or has the field taken a step back relative to what we've seen in years past? And if we're going to address topics so large in scale, you know I always enjoy having some help along the way. Thankfully, I have precisely that as joining me on the podcast once again is the returning champion of returning champions here in 2023 on our mini break podcast. A man you all know best as essentially a co-host of this show, editorial producer for all things tennis.com and tennis channel. But before we introduce his name, I get to offer you an additional fun fact about this man. You may not know it, but tomorrow he turns a ripe 24 years old. It is our dearest of friends, David Kane, DK. Welcome back to the show. Happy birthday, my friend. Westoff, give me the birthday sound effect. I feel like, I mean, can I say you're real age? Do you, I, you're not actually that old, so I guess I really didn't have to scale you back, but welcome in, my friend. How are you doing today? You know, I very nearly considered tanking this podcast, but given that kind of compliment, <laughs> it's a pleasure for me to be turning 52. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm turning 32 tomorrow. <laughs> That feels about right. I, I, I've i told you this before, and I said this with all due respect, and the laugh I got from you when I said this the first time hopefully will be replicated here. I thought you were older than 32, and I mean that in the most respectful of I ways. I that a lot. Yeah, as I alluded to, because you've had an extensive career in tennis already. You've gone and worked for a tour. You've gone and obviously now working for Tennis.com for Baseline, all the things that you've done. It's the resume of someone who is in their mid to late 30s, early 40s, dare I say, ascending towards the prime of their professional career. You've done all that by 32, my friend. Any reflections on the tennis world or things at large you want to address before we get going? I mean, I'll just say that it's true. I've been working in tennis for 10 years, and I just won't go away. (laughs) Yeah. Is this where you envisioned 22 years old? You took your first tennis job. If I would have told you a decade ago, you would still be writing for uh, for Tennis Magazine, for a tennis outlet, would you have been shocked? 
Tennis Magazine too soon. Yeah. Uh, I, Ten years ago, I was studying for the LSAT. I had a very different <laughs> career plan in mind. I had that the, the Courtney Nguyen exit route yeah, sure. where you start being a lawyer and then you end up working in tennis. I never ended up going to law school, but um, yeah, just one thing led to another. And now here I am every day, each and every day, looking at the now men's and women's tennis worlds. And well, That's what we I, love. I don't think I'd have it any other way. I get to talk to you. So Are we, are we ready I'm to winning. drop our – are we going to drop our LSAT scores on this podcast? Oh my God! <laughs> Talk about too soon. Yeah, I am bitter. I am angry. I had gotten so good at the logic games, and <laughs> the logic game for my LSAT was like really difficult. And then I totally deluded myself into thinking, "Oh no, that was the that's the section that doesn't count. That's the that's the experimental section." And it wasn't. <laughs> so I not only bombed that section, I bombed the next section section because I was thinking about the previous section. So it was. Uh, yeah, not quite the 165, 66 that I was getting on practice tests, but um, yeah, bummer. <laughs> I don't want to – you know what? I'll just say it. Me and my 171 still sitting pretty over here, although I think my score officially expires this uh, – yeah, I think it officially expires this year. Rest in peace to my LSAT score and rest in peace to those law school dreams. Sorry, yeah, I, think I, I, I I seem to recall going on a date with somebody who told me that they got a perfect LSAT score and had no plan on going to law school. And, I was, and at that point, I was like <laughs> knee-deep in studying for it. I was like, that's great. That's yeah. fantastic. May I that's borrow actually, it? <laughs> that's actually how you met Daniel Westoff. I'm glad you shared that story here on today's show. And so, our, but our love affair goes back ten years. <laughs> yeah. it's the only thing that goes back a decade. Exactly. But again, more broadly, happy birthday, my dear friend. I can't emphasize this enough how appreciative I am for you coming on the show as frequently as you have. I know I speak for listeners everywhere. I forget. Is it WJHD, the Twitter account? who is very active in speaking with both of us. Uh, he sounds like a radio network. You know the one I'm talking about, who uh, is always looking to bring you back on the show, is looking to bring Gil back on the show, all these different things. You're a fan favorite. You know it. Uh, I say it all the time. Emphasis on fan, singular. <laughs> yeah, your appearances, as good of numbers as any guest we get on the show. So, again, always appreciate you taking the time. But with that in mind, again, we brought you on not just to celebrate your birthday. We brought you on to celebrate all things 2023 ATP Tour Finals. And before we do what we did regarding the WTA Finals, again, go through all eight slash nine players. We'll make Tsitsipas Hercots quick as a joint case there. Um, I want to talk about some storylines that emerged from this event. Some funny things that, you know, again, still come up. Every so often. So tennis social media can still proliferate some pretty fun topics at times. And the discords can get a little funky. It can put a smile on the faces of tennis fans everywhere. I'd like to think the tanking discourse surrounding Yannick Sinner and his choice that he was able to make going into that whole Garuna match was one of those fun moments for people who don't take life too seriously. And let's be clear right off the bat. If they have a crocodile next to their name on Twitter, crocodile, alligator, whatever we're calling it, um, they took it too seriously. And they're like, you're going to tank Novak out of the match? Of course you hate Novak. Of Speak course. Speak for yourself. The people with crocodiles on their Twitter accounts are some of my favorite people. I just want to make yeah. that perfectly clear. I would like that soundbite to be edited. But the record show, I didn't say I disliked them. Don't ascribe dislike into my motives here, DK. I love the passion they that I see from them, but I also think it's a – accurate assessment to say they didn't love the tanking. They're a little discourse. invested in the outcome. Yeah, they exactly. Had 
That's Maybe the best way. something riding on this decision. That's the best way to say it. If they have a crocodile in their Twitter account, they had a vested interest in one half of this tanking Which, discourse. Fair enough. Discussion. If your favorite player is 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 on the ropes and may or may not need somebody to win or not win to get into the semi. I mean, this is the one time a year that this is a thing. We don't have to ever worry about this. I mean, I, on the other hand, if you were a Djokovic fan, he would have been out of the tournament in any other event because he'd already lost to Yannick Sinner. But he had this opportunity, did what did everything he was supposed to do. Let's make that totally clear because there were some jokes that I had made during the final comparing <laughs> what had happened in the final between Novak and Yannick Sinner to what had happened with Serena and Simona Halep. Eerily similar where Simona Halep had gotten Serena Williams in a position to no longer be in the round robin play. All she had to do was lose to Anna Ivanovic in straight sets. She wins the second set, plays a very long three-setter, and then loses to Serena in the final. And I think some of the jokes that I had made were twisted into making people think that I was making fun of Novak in that situation, where no, all of my, any of criticism that I had on how that all played out was had to do with Yannick Sinner and less to even do with the result. I think that was obviously a big headline grabber thing that, Yannick Sinner could eliminate Djokovic from the tournament if he tanks. That's obviously a very sexy headline for people looking for clicks. But I think what we, you and I, were looking at was, is Yannick Sinner, who's already played some long matches at this stage of the tournament, is he going to give his 1,000% effort to potentially burn himself out on a match that no longer matters, whether he makes he personally makes the semifinals or not? And Clearly, he decided to do that, and I think I don't know if that was a decision that was made based on anything other than wanting to play his best in front of his home crowd. And I think that's perhaps a decision that came back to bite him in the end because he maybe didn't have all of his physical reserves ready. But I don't. Nothing that Djokovic did this week was in any way out of bounds or anything unexpected. It was he did what he had to do, which was win all the matches he he needed to win to win the tournament. So I think that's you know to the extent that this isn't a Djokovic centric episode, I feel like I wanted to get that out right at the jump. I was it was a funny situation, but not in a way that anyone maybe thought it was well you know what they say dk i think this was herman melville who once wrote the best jokes require a two-minute explanation at the top of the pod. of course so it was well worth joke. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> let the record show that was well worth it dk really but... disappointed that the... i had a funnier joke that followed it which was like yeah. Caroline man so from the house of new jersey with her red you hair did. going yeah. i can't beat Djokovic yeah. twice in one week that i actually thought was funnier i the first joke of course caught all the attention but i, I had some successive bits that it probably maybe would have been better appreciated that was a good one the ben one when he went was it rupaul that gift yes, or it was some, yeah, some RuPaul's that, Drag Race where you eliminate yeah. the your your closest competition. Or in Ben's case, it wasn't. In my case, it was. You eliminated the front runner to win when yeah, you had the power to do so. But yeah, that's, that's not that's a decision what, that Yannick made. He wanted to play his best and do all do all that he could in front of his home fans. Maybe if it wasn't in front well, of home soil, maybe so it would have been different. I don't know. Just quickly, I don't mean to cut you off, but we did a lot there. And again, sometimes we in these podcasts, there's an operating assumption. First of all, you're listening to a daily show where we talk round of 16s, round of 32s, where I do five-minute segments on the progressions of Emil Roussevori. And for listeners, again, who are willing to yeah, put I up with that. I have to think people are on the bus at this exactly. point. Exactly. There's some built-in ex- expectation. You know what we're discussing. But let's say you don't. I'm going to quickly sure. go over this tanking discourse. Yannick Sinner beats Novak Djokovic in group play. Of course, the ATP Tour Finals works. There's two groups of four. Top two men in each of the groups of four advance to the semifinal stages. Yannick Sinner having beaten Novak Djokovic had, I'm pretty sure, clinched his spot in the semifinal Correct. round with his 2-0 It wasn't clear whether record. he'd be first or second, but he, yes, clar- because he there qualified were still, for the semis. Because Holgaruna had beaten Tsitsipas via a withdrawal. Anyways, it came down to the final, final set of matches. Djokovic was facing the Tsitsipas replacement, Hercots. Sinner was pl- facing Holgaruna. Had Yannick Sinner tanked the match, and I'm putting up the air quotes right now. Or just I know lost. It's, yeah, or just straight up lost the match, whatever it may be. A comfortable 4-4 four four exit, 
Holgaruna advances to the semifinal stage. Novak Djokovic gets eliminated, and as many people, including our dear friend Ben Rothenberg, insinuated on Twitter, wouldn't that have been beneficial for Yannick Sinner if the ultimate goal of this event is to win the freaking ATP Tour Finals? Isn't it in, uh, isn't it makes sense, I guess is the word we'll just go with, to want to see your toughest competition, the guy who up to that point had lost just six matches all season, went 27-1 at the majors, all of these different things. Well, you'd already it, beaten. Yeah, wouldn't it behoove of Yannick Sinner to at least let the thought enter his head of, hey, if I lose this match, it's probably better for me long-term in this tournament. Also worth noting, after set number one, which Sinner goes on to beat Holgaruna in the first set, he beats Holgaruna in three sets ultimately, but you could tell physically there were some ailments for Yannick Sinner as he was battling through the back half of that match. Some discourse emerged. Should Yannick Sinner have considered tanking? Should Yannick Sinner or at least have considered pulling back on the throttle a bit, knowing, hey, this match doesn't really affect my standing in this tournament going forward, and B, would it have been the worst thing in the world to see Novak Djokovic eliminated? Now, again, you totally get why Djokovic fans think that's an abhorrent scenario, that to tank, to try and eliminate this player, to let your loss offset and knock him out. Like, it, 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 it comes is off underhanded. Much, yeah, and it's just... It's not in the spirit of the game. It's not in the spirit of sport, the spirit of competition, all of these different things. The word that my people would like to use, it's, it just feels unkosher to have that sort of discussion, to have that sort of tank. And yes, you know, David, when I'm in trouble, I go to the Yiddish. I go to the Hebrew. I go to the things I know best. Um, I'm from Long the, Island. We do the same. Yeah, it's, it's, you're one of We're us. We're Mishpucha. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. My mom has been owned by the Facebook algorithm. Like, Facebook just has her now, and she's a full-on Swifty. Which, by the way, like, oh my God. the good news is Facebook got her in Taylor Swift. It didn't get her in Russian propaganda, which, again, if you're going to pick one Facebook algorithm to get trapped in, pick the Swifties, not the Russia propaganda. But she, My mom just quoted Taylor Swift on the phone this, this, this oh, afternoon. That's <laughs> wonderful. I go to my mom. My mom last night goes, you know, the Mahutanin are meeting tonight. And I was like, the Mahutanin? Like, who's meeting? She's like, the Swift parents are going to meet the Kelsey's at the Kansas. And then she goes, do you know Jason Kelsey is the center for Philadelphia? And like, look, I'm a guy. I don't think I need to list out my guy credentials here, but I'm aware who Jason Kelsey is, Travis Kelsey. I, I have two brothers in an all-boy household. You watch some football from time to time. Um, and my older brother, who, by the way, was head manager of Michigan football, which is to say he knows his freaking stuff. Uh, he's just like, he's just acting around. He's like, really? Go on. <laughs> like, tell me more about Jason. And you've, you've watched your share of football recitals. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Anyways, we brought up Mushbucha. We brought up Mahutanen. Uh That's just why you are one of us, DK, that you understood that story thoroughly. And you're like, oh, the in-laws. That is absolutely part of the ship, part of the crew. Anyways, as for the tanking discourse at large, uh, you've kind of already made your point. We kind of did that story in reverse the there, reverse engineering. I kind of love it, that. It was so took over the yeah. 48 hours of like, what is he going to do it? It yeah. doesn't seem like he's going to do it. I think often what is like the nicer way to spin it in this situation is to say, well, play the first set. And, you know, because ultimately what, what it comes down to is you don't want to be playing a long match that doesn't count. The fact that there was an opportunity to potentially eliminate your biggest competition was sort of secondary. It's you are already qualified for the semifinals. Yes, there's prize money, there's ranking points on the line, but if the ultimate goal, as it would appear to be in every other week of the year, is to win the tournament, should you be wasting your physical reserves on a match that doesn't matter? And so the fact that he won the first set as convincingly as he did, maybe he did think, you know, 
I could try to win this in two. And then when he didn't, you feel like, well, I'm already in it, you know, and I'm, I have this adrenaline. I'm just going to give up my 100%. But I think that's sort of what, that's what the issue is. It's not about whether you eliminate Djokovic because that's, that that's, it, it assumes a level of underhandedness and cynical and sinisterness. Sinister. <laughs> it implies a sinister nature that I don't believe that Sinner has. Yes, that's one th- I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I guess to put the final bow on it, I didn't mind any of the discourse. I don't mind the suggestion. It's sport. Like, you are supposed to look for tactical advantages. You are supposed to do every little thing you can do to end up in the winner's circle. That is what we glorify about so many athletes so frequently is, again, they are willing to go beyond and above to find themselves in this position. And, like, I don't mind the suggestion. I don't mind bringing it up. I wouldn't have even mind had Sinner been like, you know what, I do have to withdraw from this match because physically I'm not where I want to be and I'm in front of a Torino crowd and this Torino crowd who was so exceptional. That's maybe the best crowd we've had in tennis, certainly this season, to see them support their home crowd. Again, it's rare that tennis can provide partisan crowds, but that Italian crowd was thoroughly partisan for their home guy. I don't mind the discourse. I don't mind the suggestion. It was a little, yeah. It was a little but, Pollyanna. I feel yeah, like of tennis players would be like, oh, I, a tennis player is not going to do everything they could possibly do exactly. in a tournament. I'm like, what All pissed right, me like off so here. much, just to put the final bow on it, was how serious people were taking the discussion. Like, athletes would never, for you to even suggest. I'll just say it. Renee Stubbs was just really wrong. She was just really wrong on this one. Like, she just took all of it far too seriously. And that is where I just, like— She's never done that before. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Where, like, again, that's where I disagree. I, it's just, like, I don't mind the suggestion. I'm not going to get offended by it. Like, all these different things. We got to let's—we have to have fun. Like, it's when you There's become the gatekeeper— history. Yeah, and when you become a gatekeeper for that sort of suggestion, you're, like, to even suggest it shows you are an unlegitimate and unserious person. Like, fuck you. Like, that is where, where, like, sporting arguments get so stupid. Like, if we're going to not let people have fun, why are we— It is a sport. Like, none of it actually matters. So let's have some fun with this. This has also happened before. There have been players who have qualified for the semifinals who have not— seemingly given their best effort in their final round robin match. Yeah. That, that, that I always say not... cruise control. They gave us a cruise control match. I mean, Nadia Petrova won her only match against Maria Sharapova in a dead rubber in 2005 yeah. at the at the year championships. And you best believe I think that counts. But I mean, I think for Maria, <laughs> she would say maybe I was focused on the semifinals at that point and didn't really care if I was 8-0 or 7-1 against Nadia Petrova. Yeah. And I want to be clear, that f*** you isn't to Renee Stubbs. It's to anyone who took this too seriously as a discourse. I just think... It's too like, the, sound, the sound bite's already been clipped. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is that the... Is, should I text Parsa and say, hey, that's the Q. clip? I'll, te- <laughs> yeah, I'll, text, I'll text Mitch Michaels. I'll be like, hey, I got it for you. The tennis social this week. Like, here's the one for you. Um, no, like... I don't mind the suggestion. I understand the suggestion. I like it, it's Round Robin is so... You know, I had a professor in college who used to get really mad when people used the word unique because for something to be truly unique, it better be one of a kind. Like, it's not unique if there's a second of this kind. It's unique if it's one of a kind. But That's round some law Robin, school logic right there. Yeah, it's 171. Hashtag brag. Um, anyways, it's so rare, not unique, but so rare for us to see that round robin format utilized within this sport it's so rare where you can lose at an event and still have a chance to win it in this sport where one loss is typically the kiss of death like let us have the discourse let us discuss the pros and cons i had no problem with the conversation guess what sitter won the 
match. Like, ultimately, it meant nothing in the in the broader purpose. And I do wonder, you mentioned this earlier, Sinner was playing in front of a home crowd in Torino. Sinner was playing a guy in Holgaruna who was not only his peer from an age perspective, but a guy who he was also 0-2 against in his career, maybe 0-1, whatever it was, but winless against coming into the match. Like, I think that would have been the fun counter is if you don't want him to tank, you say you really think he should tank a match against his peer who like this is the measuring stick for him moving forward. A guy who at times this year did feel like surpassed Holger during that clay court uh, or surpassed Yannick during that clay court season, obviously leveled out a little bit at the end. But like you can have the final words here. I guess my problem is the thing that made me most upset about the discourse is the people who dismiss the discourse as beneath like a tennis player. It's like, all right, get off your high horse. A lot of F-bombs here. I missed you, DK. And this is a sport where literally everybody's doing as much as they possibly can do within the rules and to the extent that we're talking about Simona Halep without the rules to win these tournaments. I mean, this is these are not necessarily, you know, players who are, well, I couldn't possibly. I mean, you could possibly. The question is, will you do it? And I think, again, it's not about was Yannick Sinner going to go out and let himself get double bageled. It was maybe if I'd lost the first set, maybe I pull back. Maybe I want to reserve my physical energies. And I think, again, given the lack of familiarity with the format because it is something that only happens once a year perhaps we wouldn't be so precious about it if there were more round robins throughout the season although i think there was some experimenting with more round robins i think it was a tournament in delray beach yeah i seem to remember there was like immediately this kind of drama where like james blake was the top seed and like pulled out of a match and like would have still made the semi-final it was like something where it it brought up these emotions and i think for a sport like tennis where it is winner take all 99% of the year. I think that's just what we're used to. We're not kind of used to this sort of outward strategizing. I think we're used to implicit strategy, not explicit strategy. And again, as as I said, someone who watches a lot of reality TV, this is certainly not, you know, beyond the pale. I mean, there it's, 100%. 100%. Totally expected. I The amount of times I've heard Westoff say in reference to a Big Brother I mean, a game. Big Brother like, fan. I mean, yeah, that's like, a whole other thing. Yeah, like strategy. Big Brother, like, oh, it got thrown. Like, she threw the challenge or threw the competition. Like, again, tennis is allowed to have strategy. We're allowed to have these sorts of conversations. We're allowed to have fun. And when you stop allowing that sort of discourse to even be, like, considered or you get so radically offended by the thought that like someone might do something a little mischievous to try and ultimately end up in the winner circle you're the one ruining it for everyone so i'll also I'm, add that i'm anti anti tankers i'll also add that in best of five i think the idea of tanking has become less verboten this idea yeah. that if oh you're tanking the fourth break, yeah a hundred percent i'm just gonna yeah. let, the, let the set go i think it's this idea that it was just this this picture that was being created that like sinner was going to specifically not play his best or play awfully on purpose to eliminate Djokovic. i think that the the oversimplification of that was um over the top yeah, <laughs> perhaps but well, at least we got, some of us got a, had a good laugh about it in the end That's and, and at the end of the day they got what they wanted you know obviously Djokovic won and you know played amazingly so Hundred percent, and we got sixteen minutes of content out of it, so we'll take it here in this discussion. Thoughts? We gave, on we gave our hundred percent effort to this. Yeah, like <laughs> let me tell you, I went in. We dropped one, two, three, four, five f bombs during that sixteen-minute segment. There was no tanking from me and DK on this topic. I expect that same effort for you, DK, in my next question. And by the way, the difference between this pod and the WTA pod 
We spent way too long giving out grades last time. I could see it in your face, DK. I want you to know, by the time we got to the fourth name, which I think was Coco Golf or Pagula, you were like, holy crap, we're still on four? And I, so, I think I audibly yeah. said it. I was like, yeah. we're only halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> which, I don't way, think you needed a facial expression. I literally yeah. said, this is taking forever. <laughs> by the way, that was a joke that didn't need two minutes of explanation at the top. I don't think that you one, thought I was being because... subtle. I was like, no, no, this is taking me. <laughs> Wrap it up. <laughs> I appreciate that. That that was me in a uh, in a press conference with Junction Wen when a journalist asked for to list her top five favorite songs, and I went. No. Five? Or, yeah, what about our Irish guy? Many congratulations. As soon as he opens up the many congratulations, I'm like, oh no, where's this question going? Like, yeah, it was one of those moments for us. Um, on the journey. Yeah, anyways, uh, so we'll be, we're going to tighten that up here today, folks, is what I'm trying to say, which is why I can open up things to a second topic here to start. Something we don't do enough about. Uh, we don't do enough of things like this. We get so result-centric, but... I do think it's worth having the broader discussion now that the season has ended, now that we can come off the year and say, okay, yeah, Alcaraz reached world number one. He won a major. His five-set win in the Wimbledon final over Djokovic was awesome. Sinner was as hot as any player to end the 2023 season and certainly has to be on your short list of players who maybe could make that slam breakthrough in 2024 if things break properly for him. But... You know, the storyline that transcends all others, the storyline that I spent 40 minutes on yesterday and, you know, again, I imagine has been the talk of tennis fans and tennis players across the globe over the course of the past few days is, do we have a particularly strong Novak Djokovic? Like, should we be talking at 36 years old what this guy is doing athletically, what this guy is doing statistically, the actual form we see with him via the eye test? It's very clear Novak Djokovic is still exceptionally exceptional at striking a tennis ball. But there is worth asking the question of, okay, for the first time, I think, in ATP Tour history, we just saw a 36-year-old win over 90% of his matches, go 27-1 and at the majors. By the way, win 83 of a possible 84 sets at those majors as well. He wins the Tour Finals, wins seven titles, makes eight finals in 12 total events. By the way, he and Serbia still alive in the Davis Cup as well. It does beg asking the question, is it a particularly strong Novak Djokovic, or are we in a weaker era? Are we in a point where, again, the rest of the field, it's just not where it was 10 years ago. And you look back at 2013, certainly to have, we'll say, five active Hall of Famers for sure. Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Murray. By the way, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, all in their mid-20s at the peaks of their powers a decade ago. Federer was still looking pretty darn good in his early 30s as well. The fifth Hall of Famer would be three-time slam champion Stan Wawrinka, who was really starting to find his footing about a decade ago as well. You had guys like Ferrer, Burdich, the three Frenchmen, Gasquet, Songa, or four Frenchmen, Gasquet, Songa, Monfils, Simone. All these guys, you know, taking bites at the apple, nipping at the bit, winning, winning titles here, showing levels there. Like, is that was that field demonstrably better? Then the field we have now, is it somewhere in between? Where do you find yourself in this argument, DK? Well, okay, I'm, I'm of two minds at this because I think on one hand, in order for there to have been a golden era, not every era can be golden. You know, That's I think such a good point. That's such a good point, DK. You know, so obviously in a field without two of the big three, 
by definition, ostensibly, this is a weaker era. Now, do I think this impacts Djokovic? No, because in, a, in the sense that we talk about perfection and we talk about leaving the sport in a better place than how you found it. And I think I've, I've introduced this, this thread before, but Novak Djokovic is technically perfect. You know, like the It's not just about being able to hit the ball really well. It's that his stroke production is the gold standard. If they were talking about gold, it is the gold standard. He is just significantly better at striking forehands, backhand serves and volleys than everyone else. And that would include uh, uh, Federer and Nadal in that, in that situation. Cause I think that obviously they have very unique games. Federer has, has a uniqueness to his game. Um, Nadal has a um, intensity and uniqueness to his game. And I think with Djokovic, this is the standard that generations to come are going to look to emulate. This is because it's, there was something very lightning in a bottle about the way Federer and Nadal's games come together. Djokovic is, is the thing that people will be studying. This is how you hit a forehand. This is how you hit a backhand. This is how you serve to maximize everything that there is about. You know, I think that's not just technical. He's physically just a, a, on a new, on a different level. He's just physically a, a, a phenomenal athlete. And as he continues to stay healthy, that unlocks his ability to be a great athlete and to be a technically perfect tennis player. And so I think there's a reason why he is out. I guess he's a little bit younger than Nadal and, and younger than Federer, but there's a reason why he has maintained this level past Federer and in all likelihood past Nadal's because he is just a better tennis player by a lot. And I think that is at some point that is a testament to him because I think even the names that you listed, your Burdiches and your, um, your Ferrer's, your Sangas, even like an early Delpo here or there. Yeah, I would say that Alcaraz, you know, has obviously is better than them. I, I would Medvedev say that on has courts. A, Medvedev has been really consistent. Sinner has building himself into being the kind of player to be that on that same level of Holgaruna. You know, there are arguments to be made that this is not a bad field. Like these were some really talented guys who have grown up watching Djokovic and, and in some ways are the results of the standard that he laid down 10 years ago. You know, they they were all, you know, learning to play the game when he was just starting his dominant stretch. You're already starting to see his impact now. I can't even imagine in another 10 years when I assume he's still playing, <laughs> there'll be somebody else who's just, they'll be just carbon copies. I mean, I think there we will start to see a homogenization of this is how you play if you want to win. And then it'll probably take somebody else to break that mold, but his mold it's pretty damn good. Yeah. Let the record show 10 years that player will be named Stefan Djokovic, his son. Right. will be of age <laughs> at that be. point. Yeah, we'll be at that next generation. Through line. Real yeah, 100%. Line. And I do think my favorite stat is reading like Alcaraz is closer in age to Stefan than he is to Novak. Like that is a gem that can't be mentioned That's enough. That's weird. Because, yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> but I agree with so much of what you said there. Like, look, we were there. We saw these players. Anyone, I get it. Like Tomas Burdich, 6'6" weapons from the baseline, people have to understand Zverev and Medvedev are the next generation of what Tomas Burdach, uh, Tomas Burdach, nice pronunciation there, Alex, Tomas Burdach, and yeah, <laughs> look, I'm still getting over, like, still the, sick, amount of, the amount of things I'm still hacking up, you're like, come on, like, I don't have this much mucus in me, that's just not no, possible. Novak Djokovic can do a lot, he can't clear your sinuses. Yeah, it's, oh. he, cleared, he cleared my skin, but he can't clear your sinuses. Uh, well, maybe if I got on his voodoo 
Like maybe then it could clear my sinuses. I'm just there, not. There's a soundbite. Yeah. You know that Joe Pitch does voodoo? Question mark. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There you go. Um, it's the right voodoo, by the way. I mean, it in the best connotation. It's, um, it's light magic. It's not yeah. dark magic. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the sort of Carlton from the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I don't practice yeah. dark. It's the sort of stuff not the Hollowell sisters. It's the sort of stuff the Hollowell sisters would have been down with. Is what I'm saying. Shout out Charmed, and there it is. I got in another Charmed yeah, my, reference. My here. Hollowell is Jerry. That's the only yeah. Hollowell I. <laughs> Again, I'm Charmed. It's All right, like, rate it back blind in. Spot. Yeah, yeah that's, back. which is crazy. Like how that's your blind spot. Again, we can have that discussion again on a different time. Um, but the idea that Burdich and Chilich are better versions of Zirev and Medvedev, I just thoroughly reject that premise. Yeah, no. Like, so thoroughly. Like, no, they are the newfound versions of that and maybe even better. And I do want, I guess what I'm trying to come back to is I think what this past three years shows us is the importance of having the mental edge and how significant that mental edge Djokovic has against an Alcaraz, against a Sinner, against all these freaking players still, how valuable that is at this point of his career. Now, again, if you want to hear me praise Novak's tennis much as DK did, just go listen to yesterday's show. I agree with you. I went back and watched 2015 Novak and 2011 Novak and all these different forms of him and like, his forehand's just better now than it was back then. The depth, the precision, the aggression he plays with, obviously the serve has taken tremendous strides yeah. as well. He's the, so the much... fine tuning you could see yeah. over 20 it, years. <laughs> it's it's spectacular. And so I don't think it's a weak era. Do I think it's the golden era? No, I don't. Because anytime you have no, the three correct. greatest champions in the men's era, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, all relatively near or in their primes competing simultaneously, and I would say another top 15 great in Andy Murray in that mix as well, like, that's as good as it's going to get. That's as competitive as things get. That 2011 to 13 stretch when all three of them really still were really clicking. like And Murray. That, yeah, that's the golden era. That's that's just mwah, the piece de resistance. That's what all of us will have nostalgia for five to ten years to through the rest of our lives, whatever. I don't think this era is weak, though. I completely agree with you. I think it just comes down to this 36-year-old man by the name of Novak Djokovic just somehow has been like, you know what? I'm actually going to get a little bit better with my forehand this offseason. Or you know what? I am going to make this renewed commitment to moving forward. And yeah, I'm never going to be the most confident hitting my overheads. You're not going to get to hitting an overhead because I'm going to beat you before we get to that point now as well. The adjustment he makes against Sinner in the final, just, again, to see him... Because I thought Sinner beat him backhand to backhand in their round-robin match. In a way, just like... You had sort of seen shades of, like, Zverev trying to do, Medvedev trying to do, Sinner trying to do when they were at their absolute best against Novak. And then the final is just like, oh, you you know I have the best backhand of all time, right? Like, that ain't going to work twice. And it was just... Like, again, it's a testament to Novak, who you and I don't do the most praising of, because I always like to say, why should you and I talk about Novak at this point when over the course of the fifteen last 15 years, everything that could be said about Novak, it's already been said. But it is just worth noting here as we look back at his 2023 season, and I suppose this is how we can transition into the grades. Like, Yeah, I just want to clarify. I think what you mean is that his work speaks for itself. And yeah, there exactly, isn't a ton of, exactly. There isn't there's, a ton of extra things to add. There's no new material. we don't praise him. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like there's no new analysis. Why would we talk about a storyline that if you are a tennis fan listening to a daily show, you already know? Like, We don't need to inundate you with new facts about Novak Djokovic, who, again, statistically, he's put the greatest men's tennis player of all time 
halftime discussion to bed. It's just it's asleep until until Alcaraz starts sniffing around 15 slams. Don't tell Rolex can... that. I'm yeah, sure that... Rolex is working on a commercial right now. That's yeah, exactly. Not so fast. Champions, <laughs> the greatest, whatever, Rolex. Um, anyways, some, wear, th- some champions wear sweater vests. Yeah, all that is to say, I agree. I don't think it's a weak era. It's not the strongest eras, but I, I would still put this in a combination of, you know, again, Djokovic caught Alcaraz Sinner before they're in their primes. That's just how age works. There are still a lot of really good players nipping at his feet, but what we learned coming out of 2023 and what you look at Novak Djokovic, he gets an A+. Like, it's not an A. It's not an A-. minus. It's an A+. plus. At age 36, he had arguably the second best season of his career. And by the way, I went back and looked at the 2015 season where uh, – 2015 for Novak, it was just, again, like, you're just like, is this – human like you went 82 and 6 I think he played 17 tournaments made 16 finals and won 12 titles like you're just like hold on what like that that happened like again I can't even get it out of my mouth without coughing because you're like that can't be real um and yet a decade later here he is like it it's 55 and 6 again we can go through this one quickly DK a plus for Novak's 2023 year right What's the case that? even for like, an A? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I don't even know what the case would be for anything lower yeah, than A+. I mean, I think this is like your first A++. I feel like, yeah. you know, the, the, the bar, I mean, I think there wasn't perhaps an argument to be made that after Wimbledon, the, the gap was maybe closing, after Cincinnati maybe, but I, Djokovic just created another chasm between himself and the field that he is just inherently superior. And so I think that's, <laughs> there's not much to say. I think that, I think we would say if, if, if Alcaraz was an A plus or an A, I think Djokovic has to be an A plus plus because he was that much better than Alcaraz for from January to November. A hundred thousand percent. And you know, again, did forty minutes on him yesterday. If you want to hear more about his tennis, what's changed? And that still mean, that doesn't mean I'm not going to make jokes about him because I yeah. also don't think he's a scientist. But I do oh, think he's sure. the best, one of the best tennis players, if not the best tennis yeah. player to ever take the court. And if I think that's ask- a lot of where those jokes come from. Hundred percent. If you're asking me, does this 2023 season mean I'm going to start taking his takes on vaccines more seriously? No, like absolutely not. And by the way, again, like we're allowed to have fun with these players 15 years in, but that doesn't mean uh, to your point, like, do you want, do you want to let the listeners hear you say it as well? That greatest of all time discussion statistically it's put to bed right on the men's side. Like it's Novak. I mean, is, is the goat debate still open? (laughs) (laughs) Is he in the goat conversation? No, here's what I'm saying is it's only still open if you're having the discussion of, yeah, but Alcaraz could catch him. Like, that's the only way the GOAT discussion is open, is like, if you think Carlos... Burn your house down for that one. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying, is like, that's the only even line of argumentation I'll listen to. Like, I won't listen to a Federer argument anymore. I won't listen to a Nadal argument anymore. I'll listen to Serena arguments. I'll listen to Navratilova arguments. Like, if you want to have the greatest of greatest discussions, that I'll listen to. Greatest men's player of all time, that one's in the books. Yeah, and I, I think at this point, we're looking at 30. I think yeah. 30 is a very clear and present goal for him. I think that's a, ra- a nice that's round number. Not 30 slams. That's where, I mean, it's not implausible. If he wins two to three slams for the next three years, bam. <laughs> you know, like just... really, given the lift that he did this year, we, and we don't know the extent he's made it, he has set the standard in such a way where this seemed easy. And we don't know how difficult it was behind the scenes. We may never know how difficult and the sacrifices he's had to make physically to put down a season like this, but... It certainly seemed replicable. It didn't seem like for large stretches of the season he was playing like he just played his game, and his game is that much better than everybody else. 
My slight counter to that is if you think Djokovic hasn't had a documentary camera crew following him around for the last 18 months, like, we're going to get to see the point that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to see the doc. I'll tell you what. Amazon 2028. We're going to get all the last five years of Novak as a 24-part series. And there's so much footage on Novak. There's, like, from basically from birth. Like, every time I feel like he wins something, there's, like, that that – practice footage of him at four or five years old and i'm like this he's the most well-documented man yeah we're gonna get i mean in in serbia he's jesus like it it's jesus the novak that's the serbia power rankings of humans like he is again like uh, it's it's as close as you can get to a walking god his status when he's in there and like i don't i say that facetiously of course but man what I like, he is now winning in front of his kids. Like that's how much how long this success has been. Is he has been good enough like applying for enough. college, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is like his kids are like, oh look, dad just won the tour finals again, and it's like I know what the tour finals is. I'm They're Instagramming and... about it. Yeah. <laughs> They're TikToking. <laughs> well. I don't think we want to associate Djokovic with TikTok right now. They're gonna be like, we don't want to open that They made that fun of Djokovic's room. children. They called his children elderly. No, they called. <laughs> what are they called? They said his kids TikTok. Like they are yeah. sentient. They are sentient yeah. beings. They are. All I'm saying where... is, if you ca- are you saying his kids are uh, prisoners of the Chinese Communist Party, DK, by saying they TikTok, are they soldiers no, for China? I'm not saying so... nothing. <laughs> 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 I'm saying nothing. All right, we'll leave that there. Fans, let us have fun. It's November 21st, and we're still potting. So and let DK's us have birthday fun. Is tomorrow. Anyways, let's move on from Djokovic. And again, three minutes on each of these guys, DK. Three Ooh. minutes max on each of them. I'm going to be so disciplined here with each of these players. Yannick Sinner's coming first. I really don't feel the need to take a victory lap. Just let the record show. I just... Well, because you don't deserve one, but go on. Oh, you're so wrong. <laughs> Every take for Sinner, validated. 62 wins, career high at the tour level. Wins his first Masters. Sniffing around quarterfinals, semifinals of majors again. And I guess the highest compliment I can offer Sinner coming out of this season is there's only one question left to answer. Can he win a major? He's answered everything else. And tw- he's 22 years old. To have done that already... One of three players, top 10, hold and break percentage on the season. Not an A+. I think it has to be an A, though, for the Sin Man. It's so tough to say because so much of it happened so recently. Like, it was literally, like, they, for all the jokes people make about not taking the U.S. Open, post-U.S. Open swing seriously, like, he took it super seriously and, like, <laughs> ran the table. And in in ways similar to Coco Goff, who famously I gave an A-plus to in the last podcast, answered a lot of those questions can you win big tournaments can you beat this player can you beat that player and he did almost you know pretty much all of that um is it unfair to say that he didn't beat Djokovic twice in one week and therefore it it somehow counts against what he did yes that would be very unfair and I'm not making that argument but I just think at the same time I would like to see this level maintained across a season in the way that that Djokovic obviously did Alcaraz largely did Medvedev mostly did and I think that that's still Ken Sinner physically maintain this level for 11 and a half months plus do the do what he needs to do and win a slam or at least make a slam semi make a slam final i think that's what we're still waiting for him to do but so he also it's, would, I, I guess it's an a but he and also went 24 a- a- he, he went 24 and 6 to start the year like again wins montpellier finals rotterdam semifinals indian wells finals miami semifinals monte carlo like, again, the middle section got a little funky, and there were some injuries in between, but 
you want to get to that ending of the season, since the U.S. Open ended, he has beaten Medvedev three times. He has beaten Elkaraz once. He's beaten Djokovic once. He's beaten Rublev once. He's beaten Grigor Dimitrov, who was playing top 10 tennis once. Like, he beat everyone you could ask him to beat down the season's home stretch. And just, it gets back to this theory I've said all year, the top four theory of Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Gap, everyone else. Yeah, I would I say think, he's closed that gap. I will say, well, is no, little, I, but I think I, I would have put a gap after Medvedev. Now I yeah. think he's in that. He's fourth, but he's he's closed that gap. The gap between four and five is bigger than the gap between four and three, right? Correct. Yes, and that's the theory I have been postulating all year long. I think it was proven to fruition this year in Yannick Sinner's season. So I'm going to give him an unequ- get to be. I don't think you get to take a victory lap just because it happened to happen. Like it just happened like within like three weeks. Like it what was do you not, mean? If he didn't have clairvoyant, Montpellier be damned. If he doesn't have this, this would have been. A, I would have considered this a lost season for Yannick okay, Sinner. But, and he kind of like he did it. But all, he did all have under it. the wire. Yeah, but, but he it, did have it. Yeah, the real ones once. cram, DK. Real ones know how to cram. And Yannick Sinner did his cramming at the end of the season. Now, as long as there's not a Felix-type flame-out, like there was, I was gonna, Felix. I was going to bring up Felix. Yeah, I was like looking. Go. I said, didn't Felix have like a really great end to his season? And then we haven't really yeah. heard from him since. But I, I but even in Felix's Sinner's really great, season's been better. the difference being Sinner beat Alcaraz, Medvedev three times, like Djokovic once. That's like, that's impressive. That's come impressive. on now. I, I yeah, did not that's... see that coming from Medvedev that he would lose to Sinner thrice. Especially thrice he, he was he was six and oh yeah like, it wasn't it was not close in miami when he beat him so like I, I, that's an interesting one and that's a that's a rough one for medvedev looking at tw- has had at his 2024 prospects because he was looking to be the the singular challenger to the top two and now he has to potentially deal with a center quarterfinal a center in the set like that's a new reality for him but i i still feel like it all happened very quickly ostensibly out of the spotlight you know Turin notwithstanding. So I would like to see, and we've also seen a lot of players, Annette Contavide, have, have this sort of <laughs> late season stretch where they peak and have a great year in championship. We've had a lot of great peaking year in championships among the men. Jack Sock, Grigor Dimitrov, Davi Goffin, uh, a, a ton of players play amazingly and then not necessarily carry through. I think that center is certainly more poised to subvert that expectation or continue to exceed expectations, but it hasn't happened yet. So... All fair points, and we exceeded our three-minute time limit, so we'll move we on did. to our well, next I think player. that was going to be the most contentious. Anyway. Yeah, for sure. What about the reverse case? Carlos Alcaraz, who was the almost the opposite of Sinner, was so good the first nine months. Train came off the track by his standards post-U.S. Open, but again, this could be a testament to does it really matter. Post-U.S. Open for Alcaraz, who reached world number one again this year, did the thing that seemed impossible. He beat Novak Djokovic in a five-set final at a major. At Wimbledon, of all places, um, you know, his first full grass court season. By the way, he still hasn't really played the Australian Open, which is why I'm fascinated right? to see him compete there in January. It's like, wait a second. Like, we need to see how he's going to do in these conditions. Put him in a bubble. Yeah, ex- exactly. That said, like, flirted with a 90% win percentage all season long. Top 10 in both hold and break percentage. He finishes the year 65 and 12 overall. Like, kid turned 20 in May. It's an A. It's not an A+, plus, but it's an A. It's. I mean, it's sort of the Sabalenka conundrum because on one hand he plays what may one what may be argued as one of the best matches of the decade. <laughs> then Wimbledon yeah. final, it's going to be such a or the Cincy final. Like yeah, that was the best match of the really, year. Like yeah. maybe the best three setter, best five setter. He you yeah. know participated in both of them. Won one. You know, won Wimbledon. But then when you look at the rest of his year, Djokovic so 
thoroughly lapped him, you know, that it was, you know, maybe, and it was him dealing with the pressures of being number one for the first time of being, you know, Djokovic's clear and present rival, where maybe he didn't have to necessarily feel that way. Last year when he won the U S open, Djokovic wasn't there. So, you know, this is a different, you know, he's now in the sauce as it were. And so, and, and Novak certainly shows no signs of stopping. So it's, I think dealing with all of that and we've seen Carlos take dips and then come back stronger. So I certainly think we're we're going to see a, a much tighter rivalry between the two of them. I think we're going to see a lot more of those matches next season. But it's in it's just funny to think back in July, it just seemed like he was shape Alcaraz was shaping up to beat, and he was defending champion at the U.S. Open. You feel like this is going to be a very interesting player of the year debate, and then obviously Djokovic slammed the door on that one. No, hundred percent. And let's just this will be my final hypothetical to you before we move on to the next player. Here's how you have to say this is an A for Carlos Alcaraz. Or this is part of my logic. If I asked you, David Kane turns 21 in May. He's currently at two majors. Could he average two major titles for the next 12 seasons? Like, does that feel at all feasible for Carlos Alcaraz? Or even if not next season, like the 11 years after that, is there a world where you could see him slowly but surely winning like a a French Open or a Wimbledon each year and then one of the hard courts each year? Doesn't that seem like a feasible scenario? He's going to have to stay healthy which to your point with Australia, he hasn't proven quite yet to be able to maintain that level of physicality that he needs to play his best tennis throughout the, throughout this, throughout a singular season. But yes, he's, he's on track. He won a slam last year. He won a slam this year. Exactly. Like this is, this is the clip that one needs to be, we're at least winning one a year. One exactly. Two, and then you can start. Ex- so he's, he's on the path, but it's going to take, take some getting. To- but that's why it's an A. Cause it's like, he's still on the path, even if, okay, in a bad month, like, you know, the only people, person who cares about October are the people who has a birthday in October. And that, my friends, is me. And that's why we have this mini break podcast. And so October, I agree. Uh, October Scorpios, shout out. O- we're OVOs, baby. Shout out to Drake. OVOs. October's very own. Anyways, Medvedev next. I feel like if any – I mean, look. <laughs> talk about the Facebook algorithm. We'll go full circle here. They got you with their Russian tennis propaganda. No one loves Russian tennis more than DK. Or at least you are our scholar for all things Russian tennis. So I defer to you. In what was a funky season for Daniil Medvedev, 67-18 and 18 overall. That's the most wins he's had in any single year of his career. Of course, the thing none of us will remember is that he won the Rome Masters this season, the first time he's had a significant clay court. He doesn't result. even remember. Yeah, exactly. He's probably blocked it out of his brain. Beats Alcaraz in what is one of the finest matches I've ever seen him play at the U.S. Open this oh. year. And yet, like, he finishes the year at three. I, I don't know. He's 27, didn't win a major this year. He's stuck at that one number, but he does rack up another major final in New York. What's your grade for the Neil Medvedev season? Another weird one, because again, after yeah. January, the bar was really low. It just seemed like it was going to be not even a top 10 season from 100%. Medvedev. And, after and he lost to Korda, you were like, is, is the bottom falling out? out of the top 10 and you just yeah. feel like, and he loses. And he even referenced the first set that he lost to Davidovich Fokina being like, this is rock bottom. I got to turn mm-hmm. this around fast. And so I feel like with that context, this was a very successful year for Daniel Medvedev. Finally, I would say definitively breaks his clay curse. I think mm-hmm. if you win a masters on the surface, you can no longer say it's like, I hate this. It's the worst. Like you won it in Rome. Like no one is. And then he, you know, played pretty well. Um, obviously played pretty well in hard courts, you know, played that. It was, I, it's, if not for the Wimbledon final, I think there's an argument to be made that the semifinal between Medvedev and Alcaraz is one of the best, best matches of the year. Certainly top two. I think it was just the, the quality was top so stunningly high. Since the Cincy oh, final was the Cincy. Well, I guess, yeah, if you're talking about overall, yeah. 
Yeah, but, I, but the slam match is top two. I agree. Um, but then to for all of that for him to have not won a slam is is a bummer for him because he played so well and was so close to and finally beat Alcaraz at a slam and you know had was very much in the in the conversation after seemingly being totally out of the conversation. So it's a bit of whiplash. We're like, wow, this is so much better than we thought you were going to do, and yet disappointing. So yeah. I. I mean, I certainly love to have him in the mix. I feel like he's just really come into his own emotionally, mentally, like, you know, off court, just the way that he communicates. And we were, were in the midst of planning our postseason content and doing our quotes of the year. And we're thinking, oh, we, we kind of need to either do a top five of just Medvedev quotes or do a whole post. Because <laughs> he had something for every point of the season. Good. He had some I sassy like comment to make. And so like, <laughs> he's a real quote machine that that's, that's Daniel Medvedev. If, 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 if slams won, if quotes were won by slams, like he would be, Far and away, he'd be, him he'd be challenging for cha- twenty four with a uh, with with no problem. But yeah, I don't uh, even yeah. know if it was this year or not. Like, did he call Indian Wells clay courts? Was that this year? That was this March, yeah. right? Where he's like, "This I'm is actually, not a no, hard I court." Spe- I am specialist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm still like, waiting on that shirt. I asked him yeah. about it. I'm, like, I'm a specialist shirt. He was like, oh, "That's a good idea. We'll work on that one." Yeah, it's a good one. Get it. He'll have it under the Andre Rublev brand of things. I mean, it doesn't have to I be. Yeah. The, yeah, I feel like if. This is this is where we're at. Talk about like weak era. I mean, if Djokovic is an A plus plus, if Alcaraz is an A plus, I would say that Medvedev is an A, Sinner is an A to A minus. I feel like that feels like because they were certainly the top three, top four players of the season That's in that order. And I would probably still put there. I would say Medvedev was more dominant for longer stretches than Sinner's very concentrated, very high quality stretch of dominance at the end of the season. Yeah, I think that's a fair place to end the Medvedev discussion. Certainly, again, he's tier one going into Australia. Maybe the second favorite after Djokovic to win the Australian Open. Just, <laughs> exactly, just because what he has accomplished. And I will also say, I think he physically got better. Like, his forehand, there's some more chutzpah behind it than there once was, DK. Like, it's just, you can tell now when he has a chance to take the full whack at it, he does. And you're like, oh, yeah, you are 6'6". You can use your body to do all these different things. And so I do think he actually got a little better this year. I was I was also interested how open he was in talking about his equipment, the, the string, yeah, the changes sure. he made to his strings, the changes I think he made to his shoes. Like, he's yeah. someone who really felt like those changes made a big difference in his game. And we don't really often get that from players who are often, again, quite quiet and, and inwardly strategic. With their stuff I've like told that. you the pledge I've made, right? And right now this pledge is in pencil, not pen. Um, we'll see how the finasteride does over these next couple of years. But the moment Daniil Medvedev shaves his head, I'm going bald as well. Like, because he's he's a little younger than me, and it's like, okay, you're bald, I can be bald then. That's fine. And so, because uh, again, every year there's, there's a strand or two less for Daniil Medvedev. I feel his pain where every match he goes out there, he's making a sacrifice to the gods as well, because he's losing it a few really, It gets wrecked in those matches. And then oh. you, you see him you see him impress, and oh, I'm, oh it's not so bad. Like, when he gets it just right, it's fine. And then you, yeah. I mean, there are other moments where like, oof. <laughs> he is he is a testament to the power of a comb. Let the record show because yeah. he he does some great comb work up top. I like I actually couldn't agree with you more. There are moments where you're like Daniil, great, like you're it's good. All, it's all back. Yeah, hundred. And then there are times where again the matches are just not, the sweat. I again my brother, my brother in hair. I totally get it. So I'm with you, Daniil. Um, no, DK, you have a beautiful head of hair. I know. Always. I was gonna say because um, I I feel like it needs to be said. I'm, I I do wear the hats for style. This is yeah. purely a fashion choice yeah, that I'm exactly. making. It's not hiding. Also, anything. let the record show. <laughs> mine's not that bad. I'm just sweaty, and I like to wear the Crack Rackets logo more than anything else. People gotta know. You gotta let that breathe. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Um, plus. I'm tall, so a lot of times you can't even see the top of my head. Um, anyways, speaking of tall, Here we go. we'll do this one <laughs> even quicker because, like, I know where you sit. You know where I sit. Sasha Zverev, 
uh, he ends the season ranked seven overall, but two and one in group play at the tour finals, back inside the top ten. Beats Sinner at the U.S. Open to make the quarters. He, you know, again wins titles this year. Chengdu, Hamburg, Hamburg. Excuse me. More than anything else, it's that he's a top ten player, and he really didn't for the first three months of the season. So like, there's a runway for him to make that top five push once again to start next year. Coming off of the ankle injury as he was, again, on the court, hard to give this anything lower than an A-. It's, it can't be an A because it is still ostensibly the prime of his career and he didn't win a major or even really like sniff around winning one this season. But to get back to where you're just like, I'm back where I need to be for the rest. Of, like, I'm immediately finds his level over the course of his first season back. I'd say A minus for Zverev. Yeah, no, I think to, to my point about there being a demarcation line between four and five, this if, is where it Zverev is. Zverev is fifth. Yeah. I would say he's at least a, at, at most a B plus because again, mm. no Slam final, no Masters, and yes, he was two and one in around Robin play. One of those was again a dead rubber. <laughs> so I don't think that uh, I, I wouldn't hold that in in as high regard as perhaps you might. So I think yeah, it was certainly vastly improved, and yes, he's got no points really to defend realistically for the first four and a half months of the season that should make up the difference. And then he will help people will be comfortably within the top five, six and kind of back where he was. And then the, those same questions remain of whether, you know, he can, he can cross that line and what will, uh, what will, what will happen to him? Why you're wrong <laughs> is because uh, that Rublev match matters. Cause Rublev had had his number for the first time ever. Runer, uh, excuse me. Rublev was yeah, to Zverev Rublev as Sinner was, was to Medvedev. No, you're right. But like for Zverev mentally, like again, if you're at Sasha Zverev, the craziest part, not that he wasn't always construing things like this for himself anyways, but it's like you come out of the season thinking, okay, like maybe Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Djokovic, like those guys might be as, as good, if not better than me. But like, I'm not afraid of Casper Ruud. I'm not afraid of Tsitsipas. I'm not afraid of any of the Runas or Rublevs. You like, should be afraid of Casper Ruud. Yeah, well, maybe on clay at the French Open, as we saw this year. But like, uh, you can construe mentally with the results that you've had, if you're Sasha Zverev, that I'm right back where I belong. And, you know, again, Zverev beats an Alcaraz at the Tour Finals. He gets a win over Medvedev in Cincinnati. He beats Sinner at the U.S. Open. Now, the Novak thing is its own conundrum, but it's like, I beat the other three guys this year, and I wasn't even at my best yet. Like that's why, to me, it has to be an A minus because he can he can tell that narrative to himself, and it's not based entirely in falsehoods. Yeah, but it's like I'm back to where I was, and where I was was several people behind in line to win a slam. Like I just feel like that's kind of Diana. cool. That's... Obviously, a huge sure. injury that he had to recover from, but I I think Sinner did a lot more in the last three weeks to prove that he is in slam contention than Zverev did. And so obviously Zverev has a much longer body of work to, to judge yeah. that off of. Sinner's still very new. So would you go A minus or B plus? B plus. And, okay. and, and I, I wouldn't give out any other A's to anybody else. Interesting. This, I like. Yeah. Well, then let's move on to the next guy who I think would have been in A range had he put together anything but 0-3 at the two or finals. What about Andre Rublev, who this season again – most wins of his career, 56 overall. He goes 56 and 25 on the season. He does win his first Masters title in Monte Carlo. He makes another Masters final in Shanghai at the end of the year. Six finals overall for him this season. Two titles overall on the year. Ends the year at his career high, number five overall. Now, again, I made one of my better jokes a couple of years ago with Gil Gross. I'll never forget at the hotel I was at in Los Angeles. I got a big laugh out of him when I said, don't you think it's Andre Rublev's destiny to finish one and two at tour finals for the remainder of his prime? And it's like, that is the most backhanded compliment you'll hear because it's like, he is going to be a top eight player. 
uh, he's bragging about hanging yeah. out with Gilbert Rose at hotels, but uh, <laughs> some of us aren't that lucky, I guess. Uh, and one of us was shirtless. Um, anyways, oh my God. yeah, it's because my AC had too hot for TV. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, like. I don't know what to do with this Rublev season. I really don't. Like, he had five wins this year against the top 10. He was 5-9 and nine overall. But those five top 10 wins are as many as he's had in any year of his career prior. But, like, did he get demonstrably better this year? No. I know who Andre Rublev is. Andre Rublev is a player who will be 6-10 through 10 for the prime of his career until he, until he ages out. And, like, again, I always include this frame of reference— Andre Rublev will never have to work a second job in his life. And ultimately, isn't that what you aspire for as a professional athlete financially? He is going to be fine because the results will be there. He's going to make north of a couple million dollars every year for the next five to ten years, perhaps, given he's 26 years old. Is that enough? Maybe not in the context of this conversation. I don't know. B, where in the bees do you have him? I think I would have to give him a B. I think I would have wanted to give him a B plus and Zverev a B, but I think the way that Rublev finished the season in a way that was really distressing. He just seemed so upset from his first match. He felt like he, it felt like he was out of it from 0 and 1. And that just seemed so crazy because I think that that same day Alcaraz had also lost his first match, if I remember correctly. So like it was there was opportunity for him to make his way out of it. He just seemed so down and it made me think that there really hadn't been the kind of emotional maturing that one would hope would come with the Masters 1000 title. And so in that sense, he really was just one match better than he was the year before. Like that's, that's it. And not to say that he got lucky, but it's just, there wasn't a, a, a tremendous amount of growth that precipitated this big leap in a career milestone. And it's, and it's a shame because I think obviously conversely to Zverev, I would say that Rublev is almost universally beloved. I think he's really mm -hmm. become everybody's favorite, and 100%. which is good and bad because also he's not really a threat to anybody sure. above him. So I think that also helps with that. But I think just him as a person, I think uh, our 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 dear our for our our dear colleague Stephanie Livaday would would say he's very uwu. It's like mm -hmm. uwu blev. <laughs> just <laughs> something very charming and cute about Andre Rublev, but that unfortunately is not translating. The, what his his strength is also unfortunately his weakness. He is just too down in in the dumps to really mentally get himself out of these holes. And obviously, we've seen Zverev be resilient. We've seen the top four be resilient. And I think that's what's missing, and that will ultimately really be the ceiling between him and the top five. And so that's it's a shame because I think it would make a lot of people really happy if he ever does conquer those demons. But they seem quite quite stuck there. And I feel like, you know, if Medvedev can figure out his stuff emotionally, what prevents Rublev from doing the same? Yeah. You're, this show is as much yours as mine at this point, so that's not true. But when you're here, your family. Only one of us is getting paid. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like Olive Garden. When you're here, your family. Um, God, I heard but when this. When you're here, you're Mishpuka. Yeah, exactly. Easy. Uh, only, only one of us is getting paid, by the way. Sorry, I was thinking what I was going to say next, and it just sunk in that you said that. That's very funny. Joke a minute here. Yeah, that's good. Um all that is to say, speaking of unpaid appearances, do you want to invite Steph onto the show for the award show? Like, she's coming on in December. It's on my list of, like, guests to have. Does she know? Um, no, no, I haven't told her yet. Um, which is why, again, I ask you, like, do you want to be on that episode with me? Should I, oh, I like, would love to. to hold my hand along? Like, do we invite her to for the award show season, or is that something we do alone? Like, what do you think? Because I was actually like, should we go three wide for the WTA Awards show? Because that show's not going to, that podcast won't be long enough already. 
Is Steph my plus one and is Gil your plus one? Is that how we're doing this? <laughs> Are we double dating? Is that who you want me to bring? That's that's funny. That's really hysterical good. gross for the hour and a half we'll be talking. Yeah, exactly. I need you focused. Um that's hilarious. That's a good one. Anyways. This this, this podcast's about to get a passive aggressive like from Gilbert's yeah. girlfriend. That's it. <laughs> Hey, man, let Jenna cover Arizona sports in peace. Um, <laughs> all right. Here's the thing. This was the best year of Andre's career. Like, he made three quarterfinals at four majors. His one Correct. bad loss was a third-round loss at the French Open to Sanego, and yet it does feel like he didn't gain any ground in the broader ecosystem of where does no. he fit in tennis. And so, like, B feels right. That's a B. You passed. Some parents will call that acceptable. Highest-level parents know, though. B's and C's may get degrees, but winners get A's. So we move on to our next player, who I'm going to offer an A, DK. And I know you're going to have some consternations regarding this A. But people... Did I not use that word correctly? No, no, I'm just... I don't even know who you're going to. Okay. I don't know where you're going. You made a face <laughs> that made me worry, like, oh, are you about to edit me on the spot? We'll leave it all in. I'm like, Oof. How does Holgeruna not get an A? Like, how does he not get an A minus? Like, I just fundamentally disagree with people who think he had a bad season because, look, I'm well aware. I follow stats closer than anyone. I know he lost five of eight, uh, excuse me, he lost seven of eight matches, eight of nine matches from Wimbledon quarterfinals to his run to the Basel semifinals at the end of October. But his first six months of this season, including that quarterfinal run to Wimbledon, they were not just exceptional, they were elite. Like, there's many points during this season, DK, where you were justifiably making the case, like, I'll take Runa over Sinner. And if we're talking top four, oh, yeah. the top four is Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Runa, not Sinner. And I couldn't laugh you out of the room. And, like, I'm not going to let one seven out of eight or eight out of nine match losing streak, particularly with how he ended the season, semifinals Basel, quarterfinals Paris, the two three-set losses to Djokovic, like, he just he found his level again at the end of the year. That makes me think that midseason slump had to do with an injury more than anything else, than like a mental hiccup or something that he wasn't going to be able to recover from. He's 20 years old. He's eight in the world. He reached a career high of four this season. He held seed at the Australian Open, where he made round four, held seed at Roland Garros, where he made the quarterfinals, held seed at Wimbledon, where he makes the quarterfinals as well. It's an A minus for me. Like you got to remember, this kid's twenty years old. I think it's an A minus if he plays the whole season, and I think that's. I think okay. given the fact that he did not play really the whole season because it it was it was such a big fat incomplete. North America Wimbledon. was just horrible for him. Yeah, I mean, it had a really bad. bad North America. It was to the point where, girl, don't play. Like, just yeah. stay home. Well, like, there's just a reminder, about... here are the losses. After losing right. to Alcaraz in the Wimbledon quarterfinal, he loses to Giron Mackey. Carbeas Baena first round U.S. Open, which is the one you're just like, how? Montero I and mean, yeah, Montero, <laughs> Montero and Davis Cup, Dimitrov, Nakashima, Kesmanovic. That's a really bad stretch. Like we don't need to play good win, bad loss. Like that's this just is bad. also not the first year he's done this. He had like yeah, a similarly fair. bad streak last year after he made his Rolling Garros quarterfinal. So it was hard to really necessarily blame fair. it all on injury when he was not necessarily injured last year and had this problem. So it was like, is this just does this come with the territory being a Holgerun fan? Is that you're going to have to deal with these deep, you know, um, slumps? But I think between the injury. And even when he was playing at his best, he came out on the losing end of a lot of really close matches. I mean, I feel like if 
to the extent we just had this conversation about Andre Rublev, if you're getting outgutted by Andre Rublev at a slam and in a Masters 1000 final, tough to give an A to that performance because you should have won both of those matches. Um, By the way, the matches you're referring to, the Monte Carlo final as well as the Australian Open fourth round where he loses in deciding One in which he had a match point or multiple match points. Seven, six in in the um, fifth against Rublev in Australia. And in Monte Carlo, I believe he was up 4-1 with chances for 5-1. Like it was... Mama, this is garbage. <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta wrap it up. So I think I would still give. I wouldn't have given him an A. I would have given him an A minus if he not had that slump and had he not. So I, th- I think I, I'm comfortable giving him a B plus with an eye towards the fact that he's now working with Boris Becker. He ends the season in a way that's not embarrassing. <laughs> you know, like you feel like he is healthy. He's got a new, got a new fancy coach. Like I think we are going to see a better Holger Rune in 2024, um, and I think he'll be putting himself in, in a position to earn an A next year. Yeah, I I agree with you. Or a lot of what you said there. Again, my whole thing is the perspective of he turned twenty this year, and he was one of the ten best players in the world. He could have played the next gen finals next week, and he is like, eh, you know what? I'm not going to. Um, which makes me disappointed because Elcaraz, Runa, Shelton, and Musetti all pulled out of the event. Can you imagine if it's those four plus Arthur Fee plus who cares who the other three are? I seem to recall one of us was very confident that Ben Shelton would play the next-gen finals. And uh, here we go. Here we whoopsie go. doopsie. Yeah, look, <laughs> I'll take the L there. That's fine. I apologize to Shelton Nation. And it's, and it's a bummer teams. with Rune because he's always going to get compared to Alcaraz, but yeah. that's that's life. You've got to have a sense of humor about it, ladies and Ask gentlemen. Ask Andy Murray what it's like to be born a week apart from Novak Djokovic. Yeah. It's just With a that delight. one picture when you were junior yeah. playing, playing doubles <laughs> together. Like, it's always going to be there. So. And it's always going to be the uh, Le Petit A.S. Like, that's always where the photo is going to be from. Um, and it's only going to oh, continue right. Yes, from that here. video of them yeah. hugging. When they were, yeah, like, exactly. They really look like babies. A hundred thousand percent. Yeah. There we go. Just, like, yeah, get ready for it the next Nadal and Gasquet. Like, it's just, this is reality. The Ashley Barty photo walked so that that video could run folks that's what we learned from the course of this season we bullied ash barty to retirement with that photo i don't (laughs) want to see it anymore i'm done (laughs) it literally looks like she hated that photo (laughs) that photo makes it look like she's using a target racket or like a walmart racket something she picked up at a local department store and not at the freaking local tennis club or from her head sponsor or whomever it may be and so it's very much like a venus and serena level racket like a yeah branded no (laughs) if you told me she used a prince hammer i'd be like yeah checks out like that's what it was uh yeah shout out to the prince hammer the OG, right? The OG. Real ones I know, know Wilson made hammers. I played with Oh, hammers. no, Wilson Hammer. Did I say Prince Hammer? Yeah. You're right. It's yeah, the it's Wilson Hammer. It's the Wilson Hammer. Thank you. Prince would have been um, an 03. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. That, I, but that I knew was like, rackets. The Prince 03 was like a real racket. There was a Prince one. It was like the Prince Shark or something. The yellow yes, one they had in Walmart or whatever. Yeah, and it was like. Shark was it, a Sharapova. She switched to it after she won Wimbledon. And everyone was like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> See, again. Real ones. There we go. Mid-2000s right, rackets? Oh, I'm, I'm on it. Last name for you, and then, because we'll save her cuts for the offseason, because I'm actually so fascinated oh by Hoobie. <laughs> well, again, we'll do that later. I do think this is a fascinating name, and I'm just going to tell you the record, uh, and then I'm going to open the floor to you. 50-24 and 24 this season, number one server on the ATP Tour was Stefano Tsitsipas. That's right, number one by hold percentage to end the year, DK. And yet, like... Again, a, st- a stunning indictment of these stats. Yeah, <laughs> don't don't hate the play. I hate the game. Um, I I don't know what to do with Pass this season. I really don't. Cause like, was he one of the eight best players in the world? Yeah, like pretty clearly. Was he better in 2023 at anything than he was prior in his career? Securing the bag with Paulo Bedosa. That's it. Like 
That's the win of this season. And that on its own, you get a, you get a full like third of a grade bump from me. Like if it's a minus, it's going to go up a shade from a standard to a plus cuz like shout out to Cici Pass, a real win. His biggest win of the season. That's all I got, DK. Like like him finding a relationship, him progressing personally, that was his biggest progression this year. It wasn't on the tennis court. Yeah, this will always be the year that he got together with Palabados. A hundred percent. It's going to be like, the, do 100%. you remember? Oh my God, their their Instagram account. Oh my God, they were everywhere. Like they both got matching back injuries. Like it's just it's weird. It's just yeah. such a weird. And it was already like, at, before they got together, it was looking kind of like a lost season for Sitsipas. You know, didn't follow up the Australian Open, was injured. We had that whole Mishikas of, I had to play Miami or they banned me from Monte Carlo. There was a whole thing about that. And then he got together with Paolo and it's like, who remembers anything that he did on the court? <laughs> and then obviously, you know, showing up on that. And that was that was the big controversy of the week before Tankgate was, should Sitsipas have taken the court? Was yeah. he, did he know he was injured to a point where he couldn't play more than three games? And obviously we have, there is recent history, or I guess relatively recent history of players taking the court and retiring early in their round robin matches. Denara Safina played two games and retired and obviously pulled out of the tournament after that. So it's not un, totally unfamiliar for, territory for a player to do that. I mean, I think there was some vociferous defense that he didn't really feel the the weight and extent of his injury until he was on court warming up against Holger Rune, but we'll never quite know, I suppose, what how injured he knew himself to be going onto the court. Probably certainly knew he was a little injured. I don't think you it wasn't like a tear that happened uh acutely. But yeah, it was just this was the year of him and Paula. It's the year of Cicidosa. Like that's the long and the short of a season, which, you know, a lot of great content from them. So I guess in that sense it's an A plus. So I will cut this if you'd like me to, but I just want you to know one of the best jokes written in 2023 was you writing to me. DK made a very good joke and pay for Patreon on DK if you want to hear it uh, because he deserves money. The lesson from the season is that I'm hilarious. You get an A plus for your podcast performances, my friend. And, you know, with that said, that's all eight names. That's the ATP tour finals. Yes, there's still Davis Cup to be played. Yes, there's still the next gen finals, a few challengers, 125Ks, ITFs here and there. But again, exhibitions. We're, yeah, we are dangerously <laughs> we're close to, to pivoting to full time off season mode, which you know I love nothing more than here on these podcasts. And of course, that means we're going to get a lot of DK throughout the course of this next month, hopefully, if his schedule acts accordingly. But you're also going to get a lot of DK via tennis.com, via the team at baseline, because you guys always do such a good job breaking down various categories, various things in the offseason. It's one of my favorite things to do is to, again, sit back and to read all of those things. It replaces my highlight watching time is just reading Tennis.com articles. What should we be on the lookout most uh, coming up most closely, DK? Yeah, well, we just started. We just hashed out our, our offseason content. We're doing our top five quotes, top five fashion moments, top five must-follow social accounts or slash social moments. We have our baseline awards. I did, in fact, speak to uh, Billie Jean King Cup captain Heidi Altabach last week. Some some stories coming out over that. I think I've, I've already mentioned my strips of uh, my Samsonova interviews. Those are coming in all likelihood in December. And, and Barbara's pregnant again. <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even know that. I don't know if she knew that at the, at the U.S. Open if it's – if. Uh, that was not something that I was keeping under wraps, unfortunately. I wish I could have said I knew that ahead of time. I should have lied and said that I did. But then I would have been kidding. Um, but yeah, all that on Tennis.com and Baseline. Looking forward to it. And again, you can read it all, DKTNS on X, Twitter, whatever we're calling it nowadays. Um, again, it's not just him. It's the entire team, Steph and Ed and everyone. Again, but those are the only three people that matter. But everyone at Tennis.com and Parsa and Parsa. I got to say Parsa, of course, as well. I'm contractually <laughs> obligated to do so. He actually owns the rights to me at this point. Not surprising. You're um, you're one of the bombs. You're one of the yeah, bombs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but with all that said, folks, again, 
That's your ATP Tour Finals. A thank you to David Kane, as always, for joining us. A thank you to our friends at Tennis Point for their support. And a thank you, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westhoff. What sort of a job does he have to do, DK? Oh, he does a fuck of an editing job. Day in, He's my day big out. brother. <laughs> Best in the business. By the way, I told him about your can you cut DK mocking my intro on Zoom every time idea. And he goes, that would be excellent. He goes, I'm not taking the 30 hours it would take to do it. And I was like, he's like, it's a great idea. Maybe next year we'll start from the start and we'll do it just a collective campaign. And I was like, maybe we'll just do the month of December. It's like one, or, we'll... one, or one to three videos. Yeah. Together. Like, it won't be that hard. It's very funny. Um, but with all that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's, hey, I like your beard. (laughs) I appreciate it. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.